I know not everybody feels the same about what I'm about to say, but um, I love church and I love Sunday mornings. And I don't want to forget our 5 p.m. service too. I love Sundays in general. Mornings, evenings, man, uh, if I'm honest, that 5 p.m. service is my favorite service. Nothing against 11. But man, 5 p.m., it's uh, so chill and so relaxed. And we have pizza on the front lawn after the service. And my kids play baseball with me in the, in the lawn with all the other kids in the church. And I yell at them like they're my Oilers. And, you know, it's like this greatest, it's this greatest just community uh, moment that, uh, that we get to spend together, Especially as the weather's been so nice. But man, I love church. I think even if I wasn't a preacher, I would love what happens here. Or I would at least be interested in what happens here because it is so different. And I get so bored so easily with the world the way that it is. And I don't know if any of you feel the same way, like every day is the same and we're all trying to do the same things and does any, any of it mean anything? And, and it just gets really uninteresting really quick. And then we get together on Sundays and do the weirdest things together. Like, what is this that's happening in this room right now? Why are you here doing the weird things you're doing? Like, this is not normal human behavior. So even if I wasn't a preacher, I think if I was just like every other man in Houston, like somebody said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm in oil and gas. Like every other man here probably would say, like, I think I would feel the same way about it. Like, it's, it's interesting. It's fascinating, really, what happens here on Sundays um, because it is such an alternative um, to what we've experienced. And I think what we're trying to figure out in the next uh, few weeks is what exactly is church? What, how do you define this thing? What are we doing here? Because in some ways, it's a little bit like a party, right? So it feels like a party. Sometimes y'all are real happy. Usually, or you look happy, put your church face on or whatever that is, but, but we get together, we sing. There's music. Sometimes there's dancing a little bit. I mean, you know, white people dancing. You know, like whatever. Like, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, it feels like a party. But then you all sit down like this and you listen to a preacher like me talk for half an hour or so. <laughs> and so that doesn't make, that doesn't sound like a party. If that's a party, it's like the worst party ever, right? So it's not a good party if it's a party, if it's just a party. So if it's not a party, then what is it? Well, if you're more cynical about it, you could say it feels and looks a little bit like a cult, like church feels a little like a cult would feel in that we sing the same songs and sometimes we recite the same prayers like we chant them and, and on communion Sundays we literally drink the Kool-Aid. Like it feels a little cult-like, but at the same time, there's no, you know, oversight. There's, you go home and do your own thing, right? So nobody's, like, policing you. There's no leader to whom you are, you know, 100%, like, loyal and beholden. Like, if I go home, if I tell you to go home and, and, and uh, sacrifice your dog to God, like, you would tell me to get lost, right? Um, because you know I would never say that to you. If anything, it would be your cat, you know what I'm saying? So you knew that was coming. I, I would never tell you to kill your dog, <laughs> and so, you know, uh, in some ways it feels cult-like, but, but it wouldn't really make for a very good cult if it was, if it was that. Uh, although I do wield some power over you. You may not know this. I have some extraordinary powers over you. And this is true. Like, I can, I can manipulate you in ways that you don't see coming. Like, I have that power in my position. And uh, some, some of you may not know that. Anyway, I want to talk about that some today. Um, but first, let, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Let's pray.
Do you see it? You see it right here. Did you see it? It's like hypnosis. Every time, every single time I say, let us pray, y'all do this. <laughs> it's pretty awesome from up here. I'm telling you, you ought to try it sometime. But still, it's not quite like a cult. Uh, you know, it's, it has cult-like tendencies, I'll say that. But it, if it was, it would make a pretty, pretty lame cult. So it's not a party, not a cult. So what is it? Some people will say, well, the church, it's just a club. It's a social club. The church is like a country club. And we have club-like tendencies too, right? So there's, there's like programs. There's camp for your kids, you know, to stay busy. Uh, there's socials for y'all to meet other people, and, and uh, there's a feeling in some churches like, you know, uh, when, you're, when you're a member, like you have certain privileges, right? But if, if the church is really true to its, to its identity, and, and like we try to be here at the story um, because we're so new, we don't have a bunch of traditions and stuff where people have those kinds of expectations, and so... You know, it's not like a club in the sense that if you go down to the street to the Briar Club and you drop, you know, tens of thousands of dollars at the Briar Club to join, you become a member at the Briar Club, you are naturally going to expect certain privileges. You're going to expect to be treated than the average Joe off the street. But I'm telling you, if you drop tens of thousands of dollars at the store, and if that's, that's where you're at, just come see me after the service. But if you do that, <laughs> I'm trying not to be a hypocrite. If you do that... It's not going to change the way you're treated around here. And you're still not going to be the target that we're aiming at. So if, you're, if you spend $10,000 on tithe and, and, you, and you join the church, there are no member privileges. In fact, you just get asked to do a lot more stuff. You just have to work harder at it. <laughs> Less privileges, more responsibilities. And we keep asking you for money. <laughs> the fees, the dues, they never go away. And so it's, it's not quite like a club. If it's a club, it's not a very good one. So what is it that we're doing here? This is um, the, the origin. This question is the origin of our series, Semi-Organized Love. We're looking for the essence of church, what it is we're really supposed to be about. And we're doing that by going back to the beginning, the origins of the church in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, which is the fifth book in the New Testament. If you have a Bible that you brought with you or a Bible app, you can keep that handy. Go ahead and find that fifth book of the New Testament, um, the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can use your study guides today. They're in the paperwork you were given um, to follow along with the readings and stuff. And I hope those study guides are helpful. But listen, uh, either go straight from here. I guess Bible stores aren't open on Sundays, right? That's unfortunate uh, for my point anyway. Uh, Barnes & Noble uh, or whatever, find a place to get your Bible. Like uh, it's, it's an investment that I think um, really matters. If you can't swing it or would just rather check out a Bible before making that investment, grab a Bible from the welcome station um, just outside. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 42 through 47. And we're going to look at Acts, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And then we're going to look at Acts 4 as well. Here we go. Uh, these are the, the disciples. We're talking about the disciples of Jesus after the birthday of the church that Geo talked about last week. So the Holy Spirit comes and gives birth to this thing called church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property, possessions, to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in, temple, in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then again in Acts chapter 4, it says um, the same thing. I just wanted to highlight that it said no one claimed any possessions of, of their own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify and from time to time, people would bring their, uh, the proceeds of a sale of a property or bring their money to be distributed to those in need. What I want you to see today, guys, is that generosity was the first uh, byproduct of the movement of the Spirit of God among the people. Generosity of spirit, generosity of heart, sharing not just money but everything. And listen, this is not the money sermon. This is not going to end with... You know, everybody uh, getting, the, you know, the big ask at the end of the sermon. Uh, that's not what this is. I'm just telling you that if you want to know how you're doing with the Lord, how you're doing with God, um, according to the New Testament, um, your relationship to your stuff is a pretty good indicator. Maybe the best indicator about how you're doing with Jesus. Because the New Testament talks about nothing more than it talks about possessions and stuff and money. Jesus talks about nothing more frequently than he talks about money. And stuff, and so Christians get caught up in all sorts of other issues without really talking about this. And this is might might be the most important. It probably is the most important issue we face day to day. How generous are we with our stuff? How willing are we to part ways with our stuff in order to share Jesus with someone else? In order that someone else won't be hungry in our midst. That was the first reaction of the disciples when the Holy Spirit came, the Spirit of Christ dwelled among them was generosity. They started to give their stuff away, which is a little troubling for, you know, Texans who were all like, every man to himself, you know, like that's the Texan way and the rugged individual. And, and I understand um, uh, things like uh, this can be a little troubling, but listen, when the church began to gave, give uh, themselves away uh, to each other, uh, it might have, I guess, to some looked like socialism, Marxism, whatever. I've heard, actually, I've heard uh, academics uh, give lectures about how Acts chapter 2 is evidence for how socialism can work in the real world. Listen, guys, uh, socialism is, by definition, state-run. The only relationship that Christians had with the state involved crosses and hungry lions. And so they had very little interest in any kind of state-run, government-run kind of a thing. This was not a mandate from the government. The Christians were never uh, mandated to give to one another. They were not interested in something top-down like that. They just gave freely because Jesus gave freely. All right? So fasten your seatbelts for a second here, some of you. Some of y'all are going to hate me here. But listen, a Jesus-centered church is always interested in the redistribution of wealth. We good? We good? Okay. A Jesus-centered church always will be interested in the redistribution of wealth while insisting on free will. Sharing isn't the law. According to Christians, it's a choice. It's a choice you naturally make, you freely make when the Spirit moves in your life. And so sharing your life, giving your life away is a natural result of the Holy Spirit moving in our midst. So the first church cared less about 
what politicians were doing in Rome than they cared about what Jesus had done in their hearts. And that's what drove them um, to live the way that they lived. Now, what's happened with us in America in the last few generations is that we have decided that uh, governments are primarily responsible for fixing the people's problems. And we as Christians, I just, governments have their role, and don't hear me saying that you shouldn't vote. Please vote, vote every time, right? But we as Christians have ceded our mission. We have surrendered and forfeited our mission to government entities And we have said primarily when people or groups of people have problems, it's some government's responsibility to address those problems. I don't know how it happened. It's some unholy mixture of, I I think, just convenience and idolatry or nationalism. I don't know how. We got to the point where the nation state is responsible for fixing everyone's problems. But I think we can all agree that the nation state is really bad at fixing anyone's problems. Amen? All right, all right, don't clap, don't clap, don't clap. I know some of y'all are, same people that were shooting at me with the redistribution thing are real happy right now. But listen, I'm not saying it's one way or the other. We Christians have been, every election we're faced with two options and the conservatives say, well, this is what it means to be a Christian and vote like a Christian. And liberals are like, this is what it means to be a Christian and vote like a Christian. And I'm saying the first Christians chose neither of the two paths before them. They chose the third way of Jesus. And what happened when the church today surrendered its mission is that we became ridiculous in the face of non-religious people. When the church doesn't have a mission, it becomes ridiculous. That's why your non-religious friends and some of y'all think the church is just full of it, full of hypocrites. Because we've lost the core mission that was there when the church was born. And so inevitably the church only becomes about institutional survival. And is there anything less inspiring than some old preacher standing up and going, every year, we got to make the budget again, y'all. Just go ahead and put it in the back. You know, is there anything less inspiring? Because everyone knows that's not what Jesus was about, whether you're a Christian or not. Everyone knows that's not his mission. The church does not exist for the survival of the church. The church does not exist so that the church can stay alive. The church exists to bring the world to life. The church exists to bring life to the world. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you guys are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You are the salt of the earth. Whenever we lose our mission, we lose who we are really are. Richard Stearns, who used to lead World Vision, said this, when our churches become spiritual spas in which we retreat from the world, our salt loses its saltiness. We're no longer able to impact the culture. Listen, very simply, the first Christians were not involved in governmental stuff. It's not that they hated government or were anti-government. They just weren't involved on that level primarily. Primarily, they were involved with Jesus. Primarily, their task, their mission was to out-Jesus each other. So they sat around every day thinking about how to out-Jesus each other, how to love each other a little bit more like Jesus loved them first. And so it, it, it initially was not about changing the, the government or the world, Initially, it was just about changing 
individuals. So the Christian worldview, this what we're talking about, has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with, with uh, sentimentality or just feeling good and doing the right thing. It has nothing to do with morality, the Christian worldview, the Christian way of taking care of each other is theological. It all begins and ends with how we think of God. We believe that we're made in the image of God. We believe that Jesus came to show us what that image of God looks like in the real world. And Jesus gave his life away freely. And so should we. And that's where our mandate comes from. So that's the difference. That's what sets Christians apart. We're not driven by ideology. It doesn't matter what your politics are here. We're all over the map, theologically. I mean, I mean uh, politically. We're all over the map. You know, red, blue, purple, everything in between. There's all kinds of bumper stickers, you know, in the parking lot or whatever. Like, that's okay because that's not primary for us. What's primary for us is that the Son of God, God himself, came and gave himself away and died on a cross and overcame death so that we could sit here today and freely give ourselves away just as he did for us. That is the third way of Jesus. That is the way that always changes the world. So we're not motivated by ideology. We're motivated by our relationship with Jesus who said, come you who are blessed. The king will say to those on his right, come who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. The first Christians, the first church saw it as their responsibility to live these words. To live these words. And they lived these words in the brutality of the first century Roman Empire where 500 people a day were crucified. Where the Romans ruled with an iron fist. They humiliated people that they conquered. Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that was a play on words. That wasn't a real thing. It was enforced peace. It was brutally, uh, savagely enforced onto the people. And any group of people will respond to such treatment over time in one of two ways. We're back to those two choices everybody thinks we have all the time. So they would either rail against it and rebel and fight with violence and overcome it or be killed by it. Or they just surrender and submit to it in silence and become a slave to the secular culture over them. And the Christians chose neither path. The Christians chose to out-Jesus each other and to let the world see them out-Jesusing each other. So the Christians wrote things like this to one another, love each other, outdo one another in showing honor, never be lazy in showing such devotion. So what happened then is that first no one noticed because they weren't trying to make a scene, at first no one noticed the Christians. They, didn't even, they weren't even on the Roman radar, right? They were just a joke to the Romans. After Jesus was gone, people thought that's just the aftermath of another movement that will die out in time. But then they just kept out Jesusing each other. And then 12 became 500, almost overnight. And then 500 became 10,000 in just a few days. And then by the end of the first century, you guys, there were over a million Christians in the Roman Empire. And then Rome started paying attention. The government started paying attention to what was happening with these Christians. A little more than midway through the first century, Christians started facing severe persecutions. Many of the leaders were beheaded, crucified, flayed publicly, boiled in hot oil, uh, fed to hungry lions or rabid dogs for sport. And in the face of such persecution, how do you think they responded? By relentlessly out-Jesusing each other. 
loving each other more and more. And the movement continued to grow out of that love to the point of total transformation. Not just transformation of their hearts, right? We're not talking about this lovey-dovey kind of Jesus and me and like it's so nice. Like it's not sentimental. It was the transformation of a culture. A secular culture was entirely transformed in just a few hundred years by these Christians, these nobodies from nowhere who insisted on love instead of revenge or surrender, just aggressive love. And over time, their love wore down their secular onlookers. By the fourth century, 300 years after, as Christians were crucified and fed to lions and dogs, the emperor Julian. Julian was an emperor in the fourth century who hated Christians, hated us. And he had wrote, written all kinds of things about how much he hates Christians and wants to eradicate Christians from the Roman Empire. But he wrote this letter, this secret private letter that he wanted no one else to see to all of his pagan priests of the state religion of Rome at the time. Believe me, Julian never wanted us to know what I'm about to tell you. And I think it's just a miracle. It's wonderful that we have these words from Julian to see how the Christian culture, the, the subculture of Christianity within Rome impacted even someone like Julian, the most powerful man on the planet. The Roman emperor, Caesar, who was a god, said this, why do we not observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of the dead and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause? Each of these things ought to be practiced by us. We should be more like them. It is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar and the Christians support our poor in addition to their own. It ticked off the emperor of Rome, Julian. It ticked him off like nothing else that Christians were taking care of and feeding the Roman poor instead of the Roman government. We took better care of the Roman poor than the Roman government could. The biggest and richest government in the history of the world. And that wasn't where he ended the letter either. He continued writing to his pagan priests. He said, erect many hostels. Hostels are, are, are dwelling places, rooms, right? Erect many dwelling places in order that strangers may enjoy my kindness. Now listen, does that sound familiar? It sound a little bit like for I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And then Julian said, I have ordered grain and wine be distributed from me to strangers and beggars in my name. Does that sound at all like for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat? I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And then he said, I believe even prisoners deserve the same kind of care. Does that sound like for I was in prison and you visited me? And then he said, do not therefore let others outdo us in good deeds while we are disgraced by laziness. Does that sound anything like outdo one another in showing honor, never be lazy in showing such devotion? And then the emperor Julian said, I believe we ought to share our goods with all men. Does that sound like all the believers were one in heart and mind? They shared everything they had. How in the world did we get to the point just a few hundred years into the life of the church that Christians went from being fed to hungry lions to giving the emperor of Rome all his best ideas. <laughs> he was plagiarizing the New Testament, obviously, word for word in some cases, plagiarizing the New Testament while all along saying he hates Christians, 
His heart's been transformed and suddenly he wants Roman society to reflect Christian values. How does that happen? Did the Christians suddenly have the votes? Were they just aggressive in their picketing in Rome? Did they have a really powerful and rich, you know, pack or super pack? You know, like, how did that, how did that happen in just a few hundred years to the point where the emperor of Rome, the man they called God who hated Christians, found all his best ideas in our book? Because I'm telling you, it happened when Christians, even facing persecution, chose love, chose the third way of Christ. It happened because Christians, with every act of love, created in the midst of the Roman Empire a secret shadow empire that started small and quiet and suddenly grew and snuck up on that evil empire until... It was, by the time they noticed, it was too late. And this shadow empire the Christians created took over Rome, took over Roman culture, not by force, not with violence, not by winning a bunch of arguments with liberals on Facebook. It took over the Roman culture from within it. From within it. By outdoing each other and showing honor, by out-Jesusing each other, and out loving each other every day. They changed the world that way. And I believe we are seeing, not just here, throughout the world, in our lifetime, we have the great privilege of seeing the same revival happening now. The same thing is happening right now in the world as the church continues to be reborn in the spirit, again, even right here in America, regardless of your politics, I think we can all agree that Washington and Austin and, and City Hall are pretty inept at fixing our issues, right? So America and Texas and Houston, they don't need more ideologues who call themselves Christians speaking for Christianity on the news, acting like all Christians agree with them or their side. What, what America and Texas and Houston need are more Christians who love Jesus more than anything, who love Jesus more than political party, who love Jesus more than ideology. What we need are Christians who sit around obsessing over ways to outdo one another in showing honor, out-Jesus one another in showing love. I don't think y'all see it sometimes, the shadow empire you're building when you do the most ordinary things. When you stand here and sing songs together with people that you may not agree with on everything, you may not even vote with and stuff like that. Like when you open your homes to each other, when you feed each other, you're more, doing more than just like packing on the calories. Like you're, you're creating, rebuilding this shadow empire again. We are putting it back together. There is a revival and a resurrection that's happening to change this secular culture, not from the top down, but from within. From within. I'll give you one example and then, I, then I'm done. The, the guys that came back from Jubilee Prison Ministries uh, a couple weeks ago came back new men. I didn't recognize them. They had a new look on their faces. They were, they, they were shining with the glory of God. 
and, and when they came back from ministering to those 120 inmates from a local prison, they came home on fire. But there were questions that remained, you know, questions that are natural to ask when you leave a prison ministry. Like, what's next? These guys are getting out in a few years. What's going to happen then? How do we make sure they've got a place to live that gets them in a community, a neighborhood that's conducive to recovery, to a new life, and not the same old stuff? How do we make sure that they have a job when they get out of here that, that, that they want to go to and that they can work in and, and a, a boss that honors them? How can we make sure that they go to church and keep on the straight and narrow with Jesus? How do we do that? Are we going to leave those issues to the state of Texas? Are we going to leave those issues to the parole officers? Are there social workers? There's not even social workers that are assigned. Whose job is it, church, to make sure that these men, when they get out of prison, have a place to go, a place to live, a safe neighborhood, a job within walking distance or along the bus line, a church that welcomes and includes them as equal parts of the whole? Whose job is it? It's our job. Why would we outsource that to anyone else? That's what Jesus does. That's what he does best. That's what we are called to do. So we're already building that shadow empire. We're already calling local business leaders. And some of y'all are in this room and you know you're called to provide a job for one of these men or women when they get out. We're putting together a fund that people can give to that's separate from the church fund. Like we're putting together a fund that will provide rent for, for um, inmates when they're released. We're calling churches and making sure there's a network of churches where inmates can come and find a safe place to belong and to connect and to be included because our mission here is to plant that idea in the minds of secular culture so that one day, years from now, some pompous leader of secular culture stands up and says all this stuff that we're saying now like it was his idea all along. We don't care if he credits us. We just want to impact culture. That's what church does. We change the culture, not from the top down, but from within it. Dallas Willard uh, wrote a book uh, called uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines, and he said this, the world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They've done the best they could, no doubt, but this is an age for spiritual heroes, a time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and in power. The great danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. There once was a church where every hungry belly was filled. A church where no prisoner was forgotten. That church, that shadow empire is being rebuilt in our lifetimes. And Jesus invites you today to be a part of it. Let's pray. For real this time. Lord, thank you for calling us for such a time as this, what a privilege it is to be a part of your movement, your empire, your alternative empire called the church. God, help us to fully surrender to your mission, to know that you've created each of us with a purpose. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.